This is music in the key of Geneva. Music in the Key of Geneva is an ongoing project of the Geneva Historical Society. Museum curator John Marks has been researching all kinds of music and musicians around Geneva and presenting what he's found around town and online. When you talk about music in Geneva, there's a group that comes up time and again. The Geneva Applemachers! John, when we did an introduction for this podcast series, one of the things that we touched upon was the Apple Knockers. And the Apple Knockers were a Geneva-based drum and bugle corps. I think that it's probably valuable for us right away to make sure we are clear in explaining what it is that a drum and bugle corps is and what it does. Well, it started as an outgrowth of the military and then the American Legion, uh, the um the local American Legion sponsored a group beginning in 1929, but they would also have these national contests as well. And I think the modern correlation would be uh, marching band shows, field shows, or parade shows. So they would have drill instructors, they had a color guard, and as the name implies, you had a horn line and a drum line. And they would go to these national competitions and uh I think beginning in the 1950s, they always placed in the top 10 against uh, places like Philadelphia and New York City and Chicago. But I guess in terms of what they did, uh, they appeared in a lot of, uh, they, they marched in a lot of parades. They were kind of a representation of the American Legion locally as well as statewide and nationally, marched in American National American Legion parades. And over time, it's changed. At that point, they really were just straight bugles. They might have had one or two valves, and now it's evolved to the point where they've just given up and they play straight band instruments. And I think we're going to talk about that a little bit, and I guess I should frame this conversation as maybe a week before the event itself even happened, you came to me and said, the Apple Knockers are holding a reunion. How did you find out about it, and and, and where did this happen? It came about through Facebook. I post about three times a week. I post Facebook. Uh, I post f- photos for the Geneva Historical Society to Facebook, and I don't remember what the photograph was. It may not even have been the Drum and Bugle Corps, but somebody just made a comment that they're having their reunion this weekend. And I think at this point it was about Tuesday or Wednesday, so there wasn't much lead time. And I, I posted back saying, if anyone can put me in touch with an organizer and let me know what's going on, I would love to come out and uh, interview some folks. And that's how I connected with Jeff Whiting. And I handed you a handheld recorder with about, what, five minutes of, yeah, we've used this before, push this button, turn this knob, hold it right here, and you should be in, in, in good shape to go. I thought you brought back a great, great interview. What was... What was the entire event like to attend? And I may have told you this. I think the phrase that came to mind, it was like a high school reunion that everyone was really excited about being at. I'm sure there were many people who did not come because they didn't 
know about it or didn't did not care to come back but everyone who was there was excited to be there including i saw a number of people who brought their parents because the junior apple knockers and that was primarily the group that was represented these these now adults but as kids they had been between they performed between the ages of about 11 or 12 and 21 so their parents were very very actively involved driving them around doing fundraising washing uniforms all that kind of stuff so it just made sense even what 1973 even you know 40 some years later that their parents would be there as a part of the reunion so you mentioned Jeff Whiting. You also talked with Gary Carroll, Jim Nolan, Mike Brown, and Bill Calhoun. Somebody want to uh, tell us what all the uh, what all the various horns were? I guess going from top to bottom or well, we have, to top. It depends on the year, but uh, we have a soprano, which is most like a trumpet. We'd have like first, second, third soprano, just like first, second, third trumpet in a band. And then back then we had French horns, which are like French horns in a band or orchestra. And we had baritone horns, which were like trombones, and we had contras, which were like tubas. Yeah. And everything was bell front. Yeah, it was bell front, you, so you could be out front of you, you know. Mm -hmm. But uh, that's how it compared to bands. Okay. But those instruments evolved from military instruments, that, and they were in a different key. Here in the key of G, where all of our band instruments were typically in B flat. Yeah, different keys. So they sounded brighter on the field. Yeah, yeah, drum corps had their own unique sound. Yeah, it was definitely different than than band. Yeah. Now, '73 um, kind of seems to be a marker. Was that the end of the junior corps, or you all graduated? No. And well, I a lot of us aged out. You can only march back then to your 21, and so we had to stop because we aged out. How long did the corps go? The corps mm -hmm. went one more year. One more year to '74. '74. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so none of us here uh, played in the last year of the, the core. What's what's everyone playing these days? Uh, what are you going to play this weekend? Pretty much the same instruments or yeah. any changes? No. Uh, <laughs> snare drums. Snare drums is going to be the instrument for me. 
Uh, no, I don't play bugle anymore. Uh, <laughs> I've been a band director for 30 years, and I play, I'll play. i be playing trumpet. Okay. And I think we're all going to be playing Bean. trumpet. Yeah, we've trumpet. sort of made the switch. Drum corps made the switch. You know what? Ten years ago, or right, fifteen right. years yeah, ago. Yeah, drum corps doesn't use the instruments that we used to back uh, yeah, since uh, since two thousand. Yeah, they've used uh, B flat uh, band band type instruments. Do you think the average listener would would tell if we put on a record from '68 and a record from today? Would oh, we? Yeah. Hear it's, the a, sound? it's a tell, sound. tell what the sound difference? Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, somebody who, who's a, who plays an instrument, you know, any brass player could hear the, okay. hear the difference. Yep. Somebody off the street probably they would listen uh, to the metal melody, but they wouldn't hear the intonation. Right. right. Yeah. They wouldn't hear the. Well, yeah, the, the band instruments are much easier to play in tune than the instruments we played on. So that's one way that the bands are, uh, or the current drum corps are better than what we used to do. Plus, uh, you know, we were, it was a community organization. We were kids off the street, you know, so it was all different levels of expertise. Uh, now you have to have a lot of talent to uh, bring to the table to even uh, be able to expect to get into the drum corps that are out there now. I yeah, think you guys I, started out a valve and rotary. Right. Now, they're, now you're playing three valves. Yeah, mm -hmm. but you, now to play in one of the current drum corps, it starts at somewhere around $3,000 to participate. Oh, yeah. You have to pay, and then you have to audition. It's very, very, very competitive. And it's not a town from one town. It's a United States or maybe even world drum corps now because mm -hmm. uh, people come from Japan to audition or different countries to audition now. But we, ours was all, we had regional drum corps. We'd have a drum corps here in Geneva. We had a small one. Uh, we had Squires down in Watkins Glen. We had a small one in Seneca Falls, Satan's Angels. Mm -hmm. We had one in Man Manchester, Shortsville called the Shamrocks. We had one in Auburn called the Purple Lancers. They were all over the yeah, place. Yeah, there were several there. in Rochester, of course, yeah, yeah. And in Syracuse, too. And now there's a handful in the whole U.S. Mm -hmm. Is there one? Dansville. Senior White right? Sabres. White yeah, they're, they're the only competitive drum corps in upstate New York, yeah. Uh, there's the Sunrisers in downstate, yeah. Well, a lot of these were sponsored by American Legion and VFWs as something constructive for kids to do. Mm -hmm. So And we marched parades for them. Right. That was the deal. They'd give us some financial help, and in exchange, we'd go do... Uh, firemen's parades, you know, American Legion state parades, things like that, or VFW. Yeah. The original idea of this was to feed the senior corps. Right. That was the original idea of them starting the junior corps. Actually, the corps, drum corps started because they were veterans that came out. They were right. military guys that performed in, through the American Legion. Mm -hmm. And then Geneva was successful, and they wanted to fill slots as guys got older and they were looking for younger guys to fill the slots. Mm -hmm. They closed, they ended their regime we before we stuff. actually got going and so we became an entity within ourselves. I would right. say, you know, you clarify it better than that, but that's... Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the early days of Drum Corps, uh, you had to actually be a card-carrying uh, Legion member to... And veteran. Yeah, and a veteran, yeah. yeah be a veteran. But the, the rules changed over the years, yeah. I remember hearing the story about Scott LaFaro, who uh, is, you know, pretty famous in these parts, and he, I guess he played in the Apple Knockers, and mm -hmm. uh, that, at that point he was allowed to play parades and things, but he couldn't play contests because they checked your dog tags. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah. 
I guess flash forward. So after '73, you all went off and diff- did different things, and uh, the uh, the band teacher is a little bit of a slam dunk. But why do you all keep playing? <laughs> well, obviously for me, I was a band director, but uh, I also play. I play in a area big band out of, out of Vermont, and you know shows or anything that comes around. So I still play quite a bit. Yeah, I take, I take it everybody does if you're. If, if you're here, it's probably a little hard to go from zero to uh, yep. zero to full. Well, I think you know, I, I'm still playing a community band. I, I'm I'm not affiliated with music. You know, I was a sales rep, but I still that was an avocation still that I've kept. And uh, I think the reason for it is uh, the investment as kids. I mean, we put hours of investment and time to perfect the craft, to execute, to perform, to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and through all of that, when you do anything of that nature with a group of guys, you develop a camaraderie with them. And I think that's the glue that's kept us all together when we do these reunions. And, uh, and it, not just the glue from personal point of view, but also musically. You've, got, you've invested all that time, and there's just a natural instinct to want to pro- increase and progress and, you know... Yeah, lost for there's, words, there's but you know the satisfaction yeah, in, yeah. In, yeah. in playing well with a group of people. Yeah. I was always amazed at uh, how well other kids from other towns my age could play, and I, I wanted to be good like that. It was a real strong, motivating environment because you competed against these cores and you were scored, and and you, you wanted to be as good as you could. And I was always impressed at uh, how how much we could achieve together. You know, even if uh, we had our weaknesses individually did you uh, I imagine you saw these people a lot of, at the different parades did you start to get to know people you know the, the different contests oh. and things yeah yeah, yeah we, we liked were, them uh, that much <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. we got we knew the guys they were uh, competitors yeah we were strong competitors against them you know right, right. well our, our goal was always to be state champions to beat uh, St. Joseph's uh, of Batavia, who were the uh, perennial state champion. And <laughs> fortunately, it never happened. <laughs> but uh, Bill, on the other hand, played uh, with the Squires, and they did become state champions. Yeah, we did. Yeah, it was a big. Uh, oh, going from that to being a band director myself. I'm a retired band director, and I still arrange music and teach part time here and there. Drum, drum corps was a big factor in t- turning me to that. With the with the two band directors, suddenly I'm reminded of Jack Bullock. Was Jack Bullock still on the scene by the time the junior corps were playing? Yes, Jack was around. Jack was writing for... Okay, John, I'm going to stop it right here for a moment because it's clear that everybody in the room knows who Jack Bullock is. I don't know who Jack Bullock is. Give me a little bit of background, please. I didn't know about him until maybe about six months ago as I began working on this project. He's very fascinating. In terms of being involved with the Apple Knockers, he became the director around 1958 when he was just 28 years old. And already he was amassing a pretty good reputation. He had gone to Ithaca College, which was noted for its, is noted for its music education program. He uh, played in an army band and then he was an arranger Still, in his early 20s, he was an arranger for Tony Pastor's Big Band. And Tony Pastor has been forgotten by now, but he was a musician beginning in 1927 and basically took over uh, Artie Shaw's band in 39 when Artie Shaw just walked off the, the bandstand in the middle of a performance. 
And uh, so he was an arranger for this big band, and then he became a music teacher over at Gorham High School. And even by the age of 28, he was one of the best-known bugle theorists in the country and already had written kind of uh, the Bible on it. What's interesting beyond the Applenockers is probably in the 1960s, he began arranging pieces for uh, elementary and high school level. And uh, as of 2014, he was still working, but he's arranged over 600 pieces uh, plus method books. So it's fair to say that probably every school band program in the country must have at least one arrangement by Jack Bullock. But the two band directors, suddenly I'm reminded of Jack Bullock. Was Jack Bullock still on the scene by the time the junior corps were playing? Yes, Jack was around. Jack was writing for different drum corps in the area. Uh, he continued to write through the years, over the years, for different drum He wrote for us? So, oh, so, yeah, yes. for drum corps, but he also wrote concert band arrangements. Mm -hmm. and, you know, yeah, and uh, he still writes. Yes. I, I've seen really? him at the Midwest Clinic in Chicago really? oh, wow. a yeah. couple of times. Yeah, he is. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. He looks good. Looks really good. Uh -huh. yeah. Good. Yeah. That's great. He lives in Florida now, right? Yeah. yeah. He wrote mainly senior core for the senior core, right? Like he, he, wrote he was our, one of the. He wrote writers. the book in '73 for Geneva. Geneva. The whole okay. book. The whole show. Yeah. Right. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. In '73. Challenging well, stuff. Songs for Watkins Glen too. The junior core. The mm -hmm. junior core. The junior core. Yeah. Yeah. But he wrote for the senior core. Yes. Yeah, he also wrote for that. Yeah. Yes. And he was succeeded by uh, D'Angelo. 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 Yeah. And they were both from Hobart, right? Nick was. Yeah. Nick was, from, yeah. Nick was yeah. from Hobart. Jack was uh, went to school in Ithaca, Ithaca College. Oh, okay. And I think he got started in drum corps while he was at Ithaca, but then he taught at um, uh, Gorham, which is now uh, mm -hmm. Marcus Whitman, and That's I right. think he founded the Gorham Pageant of Bands. He did. Yeah. He did yes. yeah. Jack did that, yes. Yeah, it was a big thing. What were some of the member, uh, memorable contests or marches? Uh, you said Geneva never won a... Uh, um, won the state championship, but there's were there any, anything in general that stands out for you? Oh, I, I think without a doubt when we uh, made finals of the uh, U.S. Open National Championships in Marion, Ohio, and that was 1971. I, I think that that was uh, for me that was uh, our biggest achievement. We did a show here. I mean, it was an achievement, but it was a community where we would put a show every year here called Drums Along the Seneca. Mm -hmm. And uh, brought course from Canada and yeah, you know all course. over the U.S. Very yeah. successful show, yeah. Yeah, so. our parents did a great job organizing. Yeah. yeah, I'm sort of involved with the management of a drum corps at the moment, and I had no idea what our parents uh, and these people put into creating this opportunity for us to be in a drum corps. It's a huge amount of work and a huge amount of money. The money is, it's just unbelievable. Yep. I work part-time job to stay with this. I fortunately had a manager at the PNC Food Markets, Ted Evans, that he knew I was involved with it. And when summer came, you know, he gave me weekends off to play. That's great. But I, my compensation was during the school year, I doubled time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, well, that was sure. the thing when you worked back then. We all, yeah. I think most of us had jobs when we were, 16 21. Sure. Yeah. We had to arrange it so we could get time off because sure. we had to be at the show so we couldn't miss. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah my, my uncle owned the Chanticleer uh, Motor Lodge and I used to work there uh, summers and you know of course he gave me the time off I needed for drum corps. It was yeah. great. 
I think some of you were uh, telling stories about some of your fundraising things you had to do. Uh, you remember any of those? I do. Yeah. I, I remember yeah. when we uh, sold raffle buttons. tickets for our Rogers drums, first set of Rogers oh, drums. Okay. And we would go, we went through town. It's $5 a book it was, and, and the That's reward, cool. boy, I wish I could remember the price. It like it was $5,000, and it was a good, it was a large amount of money. Of money. It was oh, back then, it was enormous amount of money. I think it was around $5,000. like $50,000. But if today. you remember, if you remember right, for the people that were in at the beginning, all we did was fundraising. That's right. Oh, yeah. So we sold we, candy. They had apple knocker wheat. Candy. And we yeah. went door to door in the whole city of Geneva selling candy in our uniforms right you know and we used to hate doing that because you know they, we were like they 12 you didn't want to time on the porch until yeah, they yeah. came to the door <laughs> and and if it wasn't candy it was raffle tickets yep. if it wasn't raffle tickets it was some Those concerts that was oh the buttons. buttons i mean we sold everything everything anything you can imagine we sold it <laughs> but we had to because the core didn't have financial support from the town that was and, you know, the town couldn't really support it. I mean, I think we, we even went to the fire company. Remember, the fire company used to support us, and we marched March in our early years. You know all those firemen parades that used to be around? Every weekend in the summer, there was a fireman's parade. Well, we were at those parades, and we went to win. They had prize money. We would go win the prize money so we could get that. And then the fire company paid us a you know, a, don't, a certain amount of money. I don't even mm -hmm. know what it was. Mm -hmm. And they sort of sponsored us. Mm -hmm. And that was one of our early sponsors, the fire company from Geneva. Oh, yeah. 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 I grew up in Penyan, and I remember sitting there on uh, uh, Lake Street and watching the parade come through. And there might have been, I think there were some other uh, drum corps, but I always remember Apple Knockers because he had the really cool logo. Yeah. And green was my favorite color. That's probably the other reason why it stood out. But you always had the cool bass drum of the uh, the worm in the apple. The worm coming out of the apple. Yeah, I wonder who thought that that emblem up. Yeah, that, that was great. It was very catchy. Um, was anyone around when they still living in town when they uh, revived the senior corps in the eighties? For a little, I was not. I wasn't. No. No. I didn't even know that until I saw you posted a Some thing pictures, about, yeah. pictures of it with the orange blouses. I had no idea there was any mm -hmm. drum corps here in the 80s. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it was just like 82 to 88, maybe. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah that's, 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 that's a run. That's a run. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know I've seen pictures where they actually did a, a concert with uh, Godfrey R Brown conducting at the, the Geneva Theater, too. Did they? Yeah, sit down concert. In the 80s? Yeah. Playing on the uh, either on the drum line or on the bugle line. When did that start? And 
Yeah. How did that you was, get there? That was always. Yeah, 1968, though, no. is the first year. The first, Brenda Stamp. Was she the first one? She was, yeah, yeah played really? baritone, yeah. I, I, I don't think we things. excluded girls. We just didn't have any that wanted to play. No, so we never excluded it. Did not allow them yeah. to play in a corner drum line. They had yeah. to be in color guard. You know, and, really? and my understanding is that initially when they set up the, the junior corps, it was boys only. And it, the color guard only came a little bit later. Watkins Glen was the same way in 64. Mm -hmm. It was all boys. Mm -hmm. They didn't add girls till the second or third year. If we'd had I'm girls the in the horn line... I'm the only the one that didn't start in this drum corps. <laughs> we, we'd have had half again as many people in the horn line. We'd have had 50 That's horns. True. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We always felt that we were a little bit undermanned musically uh, most most years, that we could have done better if, if we'd had a few more bodies. I mean, I remember 36 or 38 horns. About most of the time. Yeah. 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 From a historical point of view, too, we would load right down on Lake Street. We, we always, there was a parking lot down there right. on the lake. Mm -hmm. That was where we would load in the morning when we would leave for the contests. We would return back. Yeah, right. yeah, the, yeah, whatever time. You the know. smell of bread. Three o'clock yeah, in the morning. You mentioned Marion, Ohio. What were, uh, was Ohio about as far as away as you went, or was it mostly in New York State? Sarnia, we went to Canada. Hamilton. Well, we went to Sarnia, which Sarnia, was way out by right. Detroit. Right. Yeah. Yeah, we, we did a lot of Pennsylvania. We did Fraser, Michigan, too. We did a parade there. Yeah. That was, I, I think, the farthest that. west. Yeah. It was, it was the same half. Sarnia trip. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 So that, that was the farthest, but we did Hamilton in we Canada. Hamilton. We yeah, did yeah, Toronto and, yeah. And we would do Ohio as far as what? Uh, Marion, but we also did one in Cleveland of outside Pennsylvania. of Pennsylvania. Yeah, Pennsylvania. Yeah. Boston. Boston was the, the furthest east, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. But as far as our regular shows, Utica was about as far east as we went. Mm -hmm. The cores in New York, upstate New York, kind of were arrayed along the throughway. Mm -hmm. with, um, but well, was the one of Buffalo? Was there yeah. one of Buffalo? Yeah, yeah. it was a girl yeah. core, like one of Melodiers. Batavia. St. Joe's. Two or three cores in Rochester. Smaller cores, Lakeview Shore Liners. Out to about Utica, the magnificent Yankees, mm -hmm. and some Canadian cores around the end of the lake were part of the New York Penn yeah. League. And then there, there was uh, Canadian League, some along Route 17 too, the, the Southern Tier cores. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Hornell Tearsman and uh, Barons and Stuben Corning, yeah. Mark Twain Appalachian Cadets. Grenadiers, <laughs> Mark Twain Cadets. Yeah, there, there we go. Uh, so you were all in the junior corps, and I know that the, then they started a cadet corps in um, in town. Is uh, do you know if anybody has come back or stayed in touch from that group? We had one gal at one of the reunions, mm -hmm. one or two reunions ago, who was in that. Yeah. She was she looked way long younger than all the rest of us. I <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, I didn't know much about the cadet corps. Yeah, we never. That was. Part of the problem, we never really established a second generation. Most of us uh, grew up and aged out all together uh, within a few years of each other. Yeah. Yep. And the military scooped a lot of us up. Mm -hmm. yeah, during Vietnam, yep. the Vietnam War. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that was a tough time to be in a drum corps, too. Drum corps was, uh, 
looked upon as being uh, somehow well connected with the American Legion and then the war effort and then all this uh, patriotism was not a cool thing back in the late sixties. I think yeah, I think the whole Vietnam anti-military mm -hmm. sentiment in the late sixties through the seventies really put a big hit on drum corps. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you look at the pictures, you can see the long hair out from <laughs> under the shakos that we never had in the 60s. We had to yeah. have a military haircut. Mm -hmm. I can remember uh, going to an exhibition that uh, the Corps put on at uh, Hobart and William Smith. It was the uh, Army uh, Hobart lacrosse game. And I, I w wasn't playing for some reason. I was sitting in the stands and I, boy, the the, uh, the the student radicalism was really impressive, and, and they said, "Oh, look! Here come the emissaries of the American Legion." You know, and they, you know, that's not the way we looked at it, but uh, that's the way it was looked upon by the the the, uh, the general community at the time. The Hobart community. The Hobart community. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't right. necessarily yeah, Geneva yeah, community. Yeah. Yeah. Right, sure. right. Yeah, yeah. yeah they, they, they were uh, pretty. There was a lot of student radicalism at uh, Hobart at the time. Yeah. Tommy the Traveler, I think, uh, comes to mind. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was uh, 71, I think, or 72. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's pretty famous. And it's always interesting yeah. to uh, tell the tell the new, the new current students about that because their eyes get about this big. <laughs> okay, John, I'm going to hold you up one more time here because, once again, everybody is clearly familiar with Tommy the Traveler, and I'm lost here. Give me a little bit of context, please. Tommy the Traveler sh started showing up at Hobart and William Smith, as well as other colleges in the Finger Lakes, probably around 1969. And he would show up at student activist meetings, and he would present himself as being a member of the uh, SDS, uh, Students for Democratic Society, and sometimes as a field representative. And he would... Uh, he would buy drinks and pizza for everyone and really kind of uh, inserted himself uh, into a number of places like Cuca College and Wells College and some of the Rochester area colleges. And after a time, he would pick one or two people and start confiding in them and saying, well, you know, I, I can get some guns. I have guns in my car right now. Do you want to see them? Do you want to go shoot some guns? And he would say that he knew how to make Molotov cocktails and uh, make bombs and things like that and would really try to uh, push people saying, you know, this peaceful stuff isn't working. We need to start getting violent. Well, the uh, skipping a, a ahead in the narrative, he really became known in May 5th of 1970 because uh, five Hobart students were arrested in the early morning hours in a drug raid and they found marijuana and paraphernalia and uh, some pills and the county, Ontario County Sheriff's came in and as they were making the arrests, some students saw one of the sheriff's deputies and said, hey, that's Tommy. That's Tommy the Traveler. And immediately they felt that they had been duped, that here was this undercover agent who'd been provoking them for quite some time. And they about 200 students surrounded the, uh, the, the sheriff's cars and began breaking off mirrors and car antennas and jumping on the car. And it came to a standstill for about three hours. Nobody was sure what to do. They didn't want to authorize violence. So finally, the, uh, the sheriffs just let the students go. They let the students go, the mob left, and they were able to drive away. 
And that was just the tip of the iceberg. It got national attention. Uh, there was a huge debate about uh, entrapment and having this uh, uh, paid law enforcement official trying to provoke violence. And he said, well, by provoking violence, I was preventing violence. And actually, it, it dragged into 1971 and 1972. But immediately after the event uh, in Hobart and William Smith graduation in June of 1970, there was a community protest. And we have slides of this in the archives with uh, a lot of just regular working class and middle class families uh, picketing the graduation. You know, students go home, uh, you know, uh, go back to Russia, Yakamis, we don't need you in our city. It's pretty fascinating that we can dig into the story of a storied and beloved drum and bugle corps from Geneva and find ourselves in that kind of a tangent, isn't it? It's all connected. So with it being unpopular because of its military style, it was difficult to get new members. It just became not the cool thing to do. Mm -hmm. And drum corps changed radically through the 70s to try and adapt to, the, to that... Uh, well, the movement tried to de-affiliate itself with the sponsorship of the Legion because the Legion rules restricted the creativity that a lot of the yeah. people that were in charge That's of drum corps at that time... Oh, that happened in 1972, yeah. the development of DCI. Right. The Legion started. had strict set of rules yeah. that you had, if you were a sponsor from the Legion, mm -hmm. had to adhere to. And that happened in... Uh, what, 68, where uh, DCI, they had a meeting in Indianapolis where they yeah, tried to do that at that time. I was yeah. at that meeting. Oh, who were you? And, yeah. you know, and there was so many little cores, mm -hmm. the, the big cores like Chicago and, you know, Santa Clara and uh, it was Brad down in New Jersey, uh, Brasman? Gar Garfield. Garfield Cadets at the time, yeah. They all were trying to divest themselves of the Legion in form of what they call a DCI at the yeah. time. Yeah, and it was, it was actually overruled. There were enough smaller cores at that time that overruled that. Mm -hmm. in, so it stayed, you know, small State community cores and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. The next year they formed their own organization. I think the next year, the second year, I don't remember exactly how the timeline went, yeah. but... Yeah. Uh, they just set up their own organization regardless yeah. and created their own DCI, yeah. they called it. At the I time. think they started with what they called the Midwest Combine, and then in the Eastern, uh, uh, East Coast Corps had, had their own uh, uh, circuit, and in uh, most of the uh, smaller corps like us were kind of left in the middle, and then it all came together yeah. with DCI. And but didn't you back right. then have to pay a fee to participate in a yep. show? Wasn't that the deal? Hmm. Wasn't it something like, I heard that there was like a $1,500 fee for every show for early DCI, and a lot of the course couldn't afford the fees. Yeah. But by starting their own organization, we couldn't compete. Right. We were not right. in there. Right. We were in, sponsored by the American yeah. Legion rules yeah. and everything. So people had, if they wanted to compete with the cores that told you what your value was as far as a competitor, mm -hmm. you had to get yourself out of that situation, and then people would begin joining DCI, mm -hmm. and then it became money. Then it was all money at that point, you know, and that's an opinion. You guys can, you know, share your opinion. I think to, that's about pretty that. much the the, yeah. the way it happened. Yeah. yeah, the cities you couldn't compete. Little towns couldn't compete with the money that the cities had well, yeah. to work yeah. with. You know, I mean, the sponsorship. DCI was basically uh, 
propelled by the the most successful drum course in the big cities and they just had budgets and, and manpower that we didn't have so it was uh, initially uh, the the cores in the in the area that were able to keep on going like the squires were pulling people from further and further out you know like what you probably had members that were coming from out of state even yeah yeah not too many local people at that time mm-hmm that was the downfall. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because there was no real relationship with the community. There was yeah, no camaraderie with the yeah. community. Yeah. There was no accountability no. to the community. No. There was yeah. no, you know. Financially, it was the same thing as Geneva. There just wasn't money in Watkins Glen. Yeah. 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 yeah, it stopped being a grassroots activity like it, it had always been before that. And I think we, the biggest attraction for all of us was our friends we're in it. So, you know, we go to practice and then we go to party. Um, I mean, let's face it, drum corps was a lot of work. And it was only because of the friendships that you would keep doing it. It was rewarding work. Yeah. It was, yeah. It was a huge reward to it, psychologically and, yeah. you know. Yeah. Goal wise, I don't know how, you know, it was pretty well rounded. It's pretty all around activity. Had, had a lot of dimensions to it. Didn't you have your relationships, had work ethic, had. Mm -hmm. Developing a dis discipline on a musical yeah. instrument, yeah. you know. Well, it was a simple formula, but you could achieve so much within that simple formula, you yeah. know. Yeah. And take it to life, take it out into your life, and apply it to any, even like I, this is an avocation to me, you know. But its principles still applied to how I did my work, you know. Drum corps teaches you the value of preparation. Yep. You know, being prepared when you go into a situation. Mm -hmm. Jeff Kevitt, who used to, was a soloist for Hawthorne and mm -hmm. went on to play trumpet down on Broadway, said the advantage that drum corps gave him was when he went to, into an audition to audition for a role in a Broadway musical or something like that, he was more prepared than the people he competed with. <laughs> So, John, once again, great interview. It sounds like all of you had a really good time talking to one another. And I think it's worth noting, this is just the smallest portion of the story of the Apple Knockers. This is something we can come back to again and again. Absolutely. There were a number of people that I didn't speak to at the Saturday night event. I stayed on the fringes and saw people, but it was uh, noisy and crowded, so... I didn't get to speak to everyone. There are still some of the senior corps that are still around. Kenny Peterson, I think, must be in his early 90s and still plays with an area bugle corps. He lives down in Penyan. And Hardy Karasis, who is one of their drill instructors, showed up and uh, he, he was still there. And as I, as, as I say, uh, there's still many local people and on the internet who are very passionate about the apple knockers. So there's a lot more out there. And of course, if anybody listening to the podcast has memories of the Apple Knockers, we encourage individual listeners to get in touch with the Historical Society as well, right? Absolutely. They can give me a call at 315-789-5151 or find us on the internet at 
GenevaHistoricalSociety.com. And of course, if you are listening to this on a computer, there's probably a comments section. We keep an eye on that as well. The music that appeared in this episode was from a CD of the Geneva Applenockers Anthology, 1929 to 1978. Thanks to Terry Mulcher for providing it. Music in the Key of Geneva is a production of the Geneva Historical Society. Carrie Lippincott, Executive Director. John Marks is our Executive Producer. Music in the Key of Geneva is supported by a grant from the New York Council for the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities. I'm Kelly Walker. Thanks for listening.